Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning. Good morning to you. You. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. You. Good morning. Good morning to you and many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues, where I'm your host today, Shantae Charles. And we do not have to do a short show today. <laughs> but on the other side of that, I will not be on, unfortunately, on tomorrow. So that means that we will pick up on next Monday. Uh, tomorrow is also President's Day, I believe. Um, but I am going to be presenting again for Black History Month. Um, and so I will not be able to be on tomorrow because I will be on that other mission, which is to encourage and impact those when it comes to the history of Black people in America. So I solicit your good energy, good vibes, and prayers for that event. Um, it's going to be right here in the Maryland area, but it is a private event that's going to be um, done for a staff. So I'm excited to see what God will do in that space. Today is Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, and we are going to continue our reading, Reading While Black. I believe we are going to finish uh, this particular chapter, yes, yes, we are in the chapter about the freedom of the enslaved, and we're going to be looking at Paul, I believe, so let's see, we might finish this chapter, I don't know, but um, this is the last full chapter of this book, and then he has the conclusion. So maybe we will finish it today. Um, let's see if we can finish it today. He does kind of get very uh, down into the nitty gritty of, of theology here. So I don't know. Sometimes it's harder to read through a theological reading nonstop versus some of our other texts because you do kind of have to stop and uh, think about what he's saying. So we will try. If we don't get through it today, we will more than likely finish this book on next Thursday. He does have a what's called a bonus track in here, which is um, further notes, but we will not read that. Um, I do think it's important that if you're going to get the book, of course, to make sure you read through everything. But um, for our time here, we're just going to complete the last chapter and the conclusion. All right because I want to move to this book here. I think this book in our next um, 40 sessions and really 40 divided by five in our next eight sessions, 
we're going to look at this book here because I think it's very timely. Failures of Forgiveness, how what we get wrong and how to do better. I think so many people misuse and abuse this term forgive and forgiveness. And so uh, Maisha Cherry is going to be breaking it down. So if you want to know where we're going next for Theology Thursdays, this is where we are going. Again, the title of the book is Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do Better by Maisha Cherry. That's where we're going next. All right, so let's hop in. I'm going to read here for a good 30 minutes and um, then we'll go into some discussion. The Freedom of the Enslaved. And finally, the Apostle Paul. And good morning to each of you who are in today. But what of the Apostle Paul, who's presented to black Christians as the fount of all our troubles? No one in Paul's day or in the centuries that follow ever seemed to envision the end of slavery as an institution. Paul doesn't appear to believe that his small and fledgling communities could do anything so dramatic as to change Roman law at the time. Nonetheless, I want to see whether there are aspects of Paul's thought that provide the tools to imagine a world on the other side of slavery. This quest is not unbiased or completely thorough. I will only deal with three Pauline texts as examples of the ways in which he does provide the resources to see the enslaved differently. These are his letters to Philemon, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 3, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 through 24. I will say those again for those of you who may be jotting these down and you want to go look at them yourself. Philemon, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 through 24. Onesimus the escaped slave and more than was requested. When one thinks of Paul and slavery, eventually we must address the complex narrative of Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. This is not a theological reflection about an abstract slave and an imagined master. Here, we see Paul put his theology into practice. What do texts like 1 Timothy 6, 1-3 look like when an enslaved person has escaped? Slaveholders argue that Paul dutifully returned the slave and use that argument to justify slavery itself. I want to argue that Paul does two things that undermine slavery in this passage. Number one, Paul transforms social relationships and status in light of Christ. And two, Paul requests that Philemon free Onesimus. Paul refers to himself and others as prisoners of Jesus Christ. In Philemon's 1, verse 9, 10, verse 12, and 23, this lower status has the effect of placing Paul on the same level as Onesimus in the eyes of society. If some were tempted to view Onesimus as a criminal for escaping, they would also be forced to condemn the apostle himself. Paul then does not begin his pastoral intervention from a place of power, but one of weakness. Lloyd A. Lewis says Paul's more literal identification of himself by his criminal status places his high profile in the church to the side. Apostleship was not in this case a significant marker of Paul's rank. Philemon, therefore, 
Here's Paul placing himself on a level comparable to that of another criminal and enslaved person. Paul's rhetoric makes it difficult for Philemon to make much of his status as an owner and Onesimus' status as an enslaved person. Paul also uses clear familial language calling Philemon his brother. The point is clear. Oneness in Christ transforms your relationship. Society values those with power and status as we all know. Christians treat people, slave, free, or prisoner, as family. This idea that the enslaved and masters are family undermines the institution of slavery itself. Who would really enslave their brother or their sister in Christ? And that becomes one of the major questions when all of this is going down in the 1800s in the United States um, and during the time of what they call the Great Awakening, both the first wave and the second Great Awakening. Because if African people are converting into Christianity, they are now supposed to be your family. They're supposed to be your sister in Christ and your brother in Christ. So they had to come up with a way to say, yes, we want them to be believers, but we also want to keep the institution of slavery. And so one of the things we know they did was they came up and they, they created a doctrine that dealt with disembodiment. In other words, yes, we agree that their souls can be saved, but their bodies have to remain enslaved. Now, we know that this is cognitive dissonance, but back then it was their way of justifying keeping the institution of slavery going while at the same time trying to offer salvation um, to those who were going to convert. Because those who were converting were smart enough to know that if they converted, then technically they had to be freed. So they, of course, had to find a way around this. It's easy to be cynical about this language, especially given some of the paternalistic language that surrounded Black enslavement in the South. Nonetheless, Christian theology must be allowed to make its own case. Paul believes that Jesus came in the form of a slave and by doing so brought salvation to the world. This shaming of those in power through weakness is a theme that Paul returns to again and again in his letters. See 1 Corinthians 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, excuse me, verse 18 through 31. According to Paul, Jesus serves as a model for how we interact with one another. This theological inversion of interpersonal power dynamics had an impact on how the enslaved and masters viewed one another. This idea of power through weakness rooted in love influences the kind of argument that Paul makes. He says, for this reason, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Philemon's 1 verses 8 through 9. Whatever it is Paul wants Philemon, Philemon to do for Onesimus, he wants it to be anchored in the love that they share in Christ, not as a mere command. Paul prefers to do nothing without Philemon's consent and hopes that in the providence of God, Philemon might receive Onesimus back as no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. What exactly does Paul suggest here? What is the command 
that Paul is holding back from giving. Is Paul simply saying that he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back and be more kind to him now that his slave is a Christian? Some have maintained that all Paul simply wants is reconciliation and not necessarily manumission or freedom. They say this because manumission might not be that important to Onesimus or Paul. I respond that they simply do not take seriously the implications of slavery and culture and the good that freedom does to all human souls. But what does it mean to say that Paul is confident that Philemon will do more than I ask? Paul has already explicitly requested that Philemon receive Onesimus back as a brother. Brown rightly notes that Paul wants a Christian slave owner to defy slavery's conventions, to forgive and receive back into the household someone who has run away, to refuse financial reparation when it is offered, mindful of what one owes to Christ as proclaimed by Paul, to go farther in generosity by freeing Onesimus, and most important of all from a theological viewpoint, to recognize that Onesimus is now a beloved brother and thus acknowledge his Christian transformation. Bible scholar James Noel recounts an interesting story about teaching Philemon in the context of a church Bible study. During the study, one member asked, what do you think would have happened if an enslaved person returned to his master and shown him this letter? Here he is trying to get the congregation to imagine how such an event would have shaken up the church. But the more central question is, what would Onesimus have hoped for? When he walked into the house, what reception did he hope to receive? Recent scholarship has rightly asked us to see Onesimus as an agent capable of acting on his own behalf. Teroya Bone posits the following scenario that takes seriously Onesimus' own agency. He knew that his master had been converted into the Christian faith as the entire household was now taking part in worship at the house. Mm -hmm. He knew that the leader of the evangelistic movement was Paul and that he was in Rome. He then stole from Philemon because he would not be able to reach Rome without any money to meet Paul. In my observation, Onesimus knew that the new faith proposed new things that had been unheard of in their time. He wanted to be manumitted and upon staying with Paul, he proved himself a good worker with the intention that Paul would recommend him for freedom, also known as manumission. I do not think that we have evidence to suggest Onesimus stole from Philemon, but his basic point does stand. Nothing in the text prevents us from assuming that he sought Paul out with the intention of being freed and that Paul joins him in the effort to plead for his freedom. Therefore, we must stop calling Onesimus a runaway slave. To call him a runaway centers the opinion of the slaveholders because when someone runs away, the logical thing is to return them. But Onesimus had no desire to be returned. Onesimus did not run away. He escaped. If Onesimus went to Paul hoping for freedom, he found much more. He was changed by the gospel. This does not mean that he expected less. Rather, he returned with hopes of freedom and Christian brotherhood. Philemon would have been hard-pressed to deny such a hope in light of this letter. Onesimus' longing to, for freedom gives another and other Christians room for hope. 
Here's an excerpt of an appeal by enslaved Christians to the House of Representatives in Massachusetts all the way back in 1774. This is what they had to say. Our lives are embittered to us. By our deplorable situation, we are rendered incapable of showing our obedience to Almighty God. How can an enslaved person perform the duties of husband to a wife or a parent to his child? How can a husband leave master to work and cleave to his wife? How can the child obey their parents in all things when the master is over all of them? There is a great number of us, sir, members of the Church of Christ. How can the master and the slave be said to fulfill the command, live in love, let brotherly love continue and abound, bear ye one another's burdens? How can the master be said to bear my burden when he bears me down with those heavy chains of slavery and oppressions against my will? And how can we fulfill our part of duty to him while in this condition, as we cannot serve our God as we ought in this situation? So just this one historical piece here throws out this idea and this notion that black people were just, quote unquote, satisfied with their station in lot, that they were just happy slaves, you know, um, willing to be satisfied in this condition. They were appealing... <laughs> to the House of Representatives in 1774 in Massachusetts and giving good theological explanation as to why slavery does not even work for a nation that calls itself Christian, that it doesn't work for the slave master who is a Christian, that it is in contradiction to the word itself, that it was actually in contradiction to the expectations of them as husbands, as wives, and as parents. So they not only gave theological argument, but they also gave social and civic argument as to why this is an institution that doesn't work. 1774. Hats off to the ancestors. These Christians argue that the nature of the Christian life requires their freedom. They cannot fully function as husbands, fathers, wives and children as enslaved persons. The Christian message then has put pressure on the institution. Furthermore, these enslaved people appeal to the very same brotherhood that Paul refers to in Philemon. They maintain that brotherly love compels Christians to consider what the institution does to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And therein lies one of the issues because some of these people do not consider us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me sip on that. We are in 2024 and we still have white Christians that don't really consider us as brothers and sisters in Christ. In their minds, they still see us as inferior. In their minds, they still see us as not fully capable of carrying the message of the gospel. They'll put you in a ministry and they'll put you up to sing, dance, <laughs> juggle, <laughs> clean the restrooms. They'll make you the pastor of janitorial services. But as far as brother and sister in Christ and equality, they're still to this day Christians that are white that don't see you as brother and sister in Christ or they're equal. 
I'm not talking about what I suspect. I'm talking about what I lived and what I experienced and what I know for a fact. Okay. I contend that God intended to use Paul's familiar depiction of Christianity to put exactly that type of pressure on the church to redefine and abolish the institution. The condition of our calling, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 through 24, from Philemon's house to Corinth. In the seventh chapter of Paul's letter to Corinthians, Paul turns to a series of questions posed to him about how to live as Christians. These questions address marriage, divorce, circumcision, and even singleness. His general advice in all these arenas can be summed up with the following. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. If you were already circumcised when you became a Christian, do not try to change that. If you were married to an unbeliever, do not pursue a divorce just because they are not believers. Our focus here is his discussion of slavery. He says this to the slaves. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Okay, let me sip on it. <laughs> One more time. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to the faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is now Christ's enslaved. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Do, 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 do. Okay. It is easy to misunderstand Paul's opening statement that the Christian shouldn't be troubled by slavery. Does he mean that being enslaved was not important? That is not what Paul is saying. New Testament scholars Siampa and Rosner imagine an enslaved person asking the question, isn't my ability to honor and serve God profoundly compromised by the fact that I live the life of a slave? Isn't this especially the case where it pertains to living a life of sexual purity and integrity? Wouldn't I have a better standing if only I were free? This is the exact problem that the enslaved people in Massachusetts pose to the legislature. Slavery limits their Christian practice. Paul's point isn't that this question is insignificant. His point is that enslaved people are not morally culpable for the sins visited upon them by their masters. They are not guilty, nor does God love them less if slavery makes it impossible to follow the commands of Christ fully. This is a pastoral response. Even though Paul says that slaves are not morally culpable for the sins of their masters, he does counsel them to obtain their freedom if possible. He does not counsel them on how to obtain their freedom. But keep in mind, you cannot be enslaved and not have issues with sexual purity and integrity. If we understand the institution of slavery, especially shadow slavery in the United States, these masters were sleeping with women who were enslaved. That negates sexual purity. They were breeding them to create more enslaved persons. That negates sexual purity and integrity. 
So how is it going to be possible for me to live by certain tenets of Christianity in this enslaved state? Does not compute. Let me continue. What are the implications for our understanding of Paul and slavery? Paul doesn't believe that Jew and Gentile and slave and free are relativized in the same way. He tells Gentiles that they are not to be circumcised to please God. He tells the enslaved to get free if they can. Why? Because he recognizes that slavery places limits upon the believer. We have to ask how this letter would land in a mixed congregation. We have enslavers listening to Paul tell slaves to gain freedom if they can. Paul's words could have been used to convict the consciences of slave masters so that like Philemon, they might act out of love, which they say they are now walking in. We must also ask how those in power in a democratic republic should have received this message from Paul. Christians should have become the means by which the enslaved person received their long sought freedom. It should have been the means, but many times it was not because as we said earlier, they had to come up with their own doctrines to get around this language that required them to set people free. First Timothy six verses one through three. Is the entire revolution undone by this, where Paul tells slaves to submit to their masters? Many would say yes and would further argue that the revolution never in fact occurred. They would suggest the idealized picture of slaves and masters in the New Testament fails to take the suffering of enslaved persons seriously. They suggest that the New Testament deals in abstractions while slavery existed as a lived thing in which people suffered. There are a few problems with this criticism. It seems to assume a certain cynicism on the part of Paul, as if he really didn't believe that faith could reconfigure relationships, but simply used all the language of reciprocity and family to keep enslaved persons in line. This makes it seem as if there were two sides, pro-slavery and the abolitionists, and Paul chose the former. There was no wholesale resistance to slavery in Paul's day. Slavery didn't need Paul to maintain it. It was an all-encompassing, self-sustaining system. Second, all Christian theology deals with ideals, not just the discussion of slavery. Paul's discussion of the fruit of the Spirit or the mutual love that should mark the Christian life can also be dismissed as idealistic. Nonetheless, Paul believed that such a love was possible even if the church was failing in it repeatedly and still to this day. We have every reason to believe that Paul believed what he wrote about the church as family and thought that the cross really did reconfigure all social relationships. But what about what Paul actually says in 1 Timothy 6 verses 1 through 3? He imagines two scenarios. First, he refers to enslaved people who have unbelieving masters. He says they should honor their masters so that God's name and Christian teaching shouldn't be slandered. This portion of instruction alludes to the passage in the Old Testament that referred to the Gentiles blaspheming God's name because of the poor witness of Israel. This allusion to an enslaved witness to unbelievers is a much neglected aspect of this passage. We have Old Testament examples of what it looks like for enslaved Jews to honor God's name before unbelievers. For example, Daniel and Joseph. In both cases, they found themselves under a foreign entity 
who had power over life and death. Joseph, when pressured to have sex with Potiphar's wife, refused and suffered as a result. Keep in mind, Joseph was considered a slave without control over his person when he was approached by Potiphar's wife. A lot of people don't think about that. But what does he do? He refuses um, intimacy with her and does suffer as a result. Daniel refuses to bow down to an idol. Remember, they were still in captivity, even though they were in positions of administration and rule. Both were lauded in the biblical and second temple material as examples of faithfulness under slavery. Thus, it is wrong to construe Paul's call to submit as simply implying that he wanted Christians who were enslaved to just do whatever their masters wanted. If he's alluding back to the Old Testament, which he is, there are plenty of examples of people who did not just do what the master wanted under slavery. There were examples in the biblical text of resisting the sexual advances of slave masters as a means of honoring God's name. I propose then, when Paul speaks of the enslaved honoring their masters, he does not mean unquestioned obedience. Drawing on the prophetic tradition, he has in mind behaving in such a way that their masters are drawn to God. This included, according to the Old Testament testimony, periodic refusal to obey. This is not slavery as evangelism. Instead, it is saying that even in enslavement, one has some ability to live in a way that testifies to their beliefs. The second scenario deals with Christian masters and Christian enslaved. Paul asked the enslaved to treat their masters with respect. It is important to note that Paul sees the enslaved person as a moral agent and not simply as a tool or property. He instructs them as those capable of making decisions. He also seems to suggest that there is something in the gospel that makes them look upon their masters differently. The gospel as Paul preached it apparently did upset the dynamics. Paul does not go all the way and say, let's actualize what the gospel implies. Instead, he says that even in this changed circumstance, we still owe them love and respect as the church begins to fully implement the realities of the gospel. The structures remain in place here at least even if the gospel has weakened the structure's power. So what are we to make of this passage? I think we should see 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 3, in as much the same way that we see the slave laws of the Old Testament. Paul is trying to make pastoral sense of a difficult situation. We are not limited to his solution, but we can be inspired by his example. Paul, despite claims to the contrary, sought to limit the damage done by slavery and rethought the whole institution in light of the cross and resurrection. Nothing in Paul's imaginative world remained the same after he came to believe in the resurrection. Slavery had to change like everything else. The church should have, much sooner than it did, been able to implement more fully the implications of the gospel in the United States and beyond. We should have freed the enslaved. The Christian institution should have been the first ones championing and demonstrating that in Christ, all are free. Instead, 
humanity entered in and they began to reason with the prosperous methods of slavery. They saw money and they saw the profit and they saw the comfort that slavery brought, which caused them to compromise what they were actually teaching. They created doctrines that helped them to justify carrying on the institution of enslavement so that they could make money and so that their lives would remain comfortable. Some churches and some denominations have um, spoken up about that and they have really acknowledged that. Others have not, and maybe they don't plan to. Only time can tell at this point. Conclusion. We began with a question posed by James Pennington. Did the God he served support slavery? He thought that all hung on that question. This is a very dangerous question for the black Christian to ask because we do not know what awaits us on the other side of asking. We began by looking at the exegetical model given to us by Christ. Jesus argues from God's wider creational purpose rather than particular passages from the Old Testament. He maintained that some passages limit human sin rather than present an ideal of sin or the world. Therefore, we are not limited to those passages when constructing a proper Christian theology. I argue that since slavery was not God's original intention, the Christian could reason from creation to the liberation of the enslaved. Furthermore, we could reason back from Christian eschatology to present freedom as a foretaste. I argue that the Old and New Testaments, even the letters of Paul, provide us with theological resources in order to dismantle slavery. It is simply false to claim that the Old and New Testaments simply baptize the institutions as they find them. Instead, the scriptures raise tension between the central themes of the Bible and enslavement. Are these hints and starts enough by themselves? A full discussion of Christianity and slavery would involve a discussion of how all its beliefs work together to end slavery, including the command to love one another, the warning against greed and sexual immorality, which are embedded in the process of slavery, the atonement, the image of God, and seeing people as the image of God and not property, justification, and justice. Together, these doctrines make the institution unacceptable in the long term for anyone. But rather than making that argument here, I close with the answer that Pennington came to after a life of struggling with this question. It represents a former slave person's conclusion on the matter. He said, my sentence is that slavery is condemned by the general tenor and scope of the New Testament, its doctrines, its precepts, and all its warnings against the system. I am not bound to show that the New Testament authorizes me in such a chapter and verse to reject the slaveholder. It is sufficient for me to show what is acknowledged by my opponents, that it is murdering the poor, corrupting society, alienating the brethren, and sowing a seed of discord in the bosom of the entire church. Let us always bear in mind of what slavery is and what the gospel is. So, when we come back on next week, we will start with his conclusion to his book, and then we will begin Failures of Forgiveness.
another theological look at a concept that so many people utilize, whether for good or for manipulation. All right. I am opening it up for some discussion. Please feel free to click on the camera if you would like to join me and tell me what you think about uh, Esau Macaulay's work. I think he's made some excellent points. Um, he even brought out some things that I did not necessarily, um, it kind of been in the back of my mind, but I did not necessarily have them at the forefront about enslavement. I will say that in the original text, the word slave nor master is in there. <clears throat> These words get inserted into the text once you get to the King James Version of the Bible. And we know that King James definitely has an agenda to make sure that those words are inserted into the text because of what is kicking off um, after he authorizes this word to go around the world. Um, and we know his versions are, I believe, 1611 is uh, was the first one. And then 1619, the first group of enslaved persons shows up in the new world in mass. 1611, 1619. So... Think about that. One thing has to be set in place first before the other can be propagated in the new world. This has been, for those of you listening by Spotify and Google Play, this has been another episode of Daring Dialogue, and I've been your host today, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care, be well, and be light.